Let's get going. Nehemiah chapter 2. That's where we are today. We are in the second week of a series through Nehemiah. So while you find that, um, let me just mention briefly, and I don't usually do this, but I think the circumstances warrant it. Um, I try my best to keep you awake, try not to be boring. But if you have just turned 60 and you've ran 60 miles and biked 60 miles and swam 60 laps, Cecil, if you doze off during the middle of this sermon, it's okay, man. It's okay. (laughs) Betty, just let him sleep. Just, I can't believe you're here. I don't think I've ran 60 miles ever, cumulatively. Um, And did you catch that? That That's not like been over the last couple months. That was like through a 24-hour... What? Anyway, people do that. All right. Well, listen, uh, we are in the second week of a series through the book of Nehemiah, Old Testament book. And um, I'm going to do just a bit of catching up because I know we've got some folks that are here for the first time today. So I want to I want to bring you on board. But uh, we um, are working our way through Nehemiah, which is an Old Testament book, which is a great book about a group of people that have a burden that is bigger than themselves, that are on a mission for Jesus in their time and place. And what has happened here, just a uh, the Old Testament in about 45 uh, seconds or a minute, God calls a group of people. He calls this nation of Israel out of nothing. He makes them and, and he calls this man named Abraham in about uh, Genesis 11 and 12. And he forms a nation through this man. And then this nation, he gives them a promise. He gives this man a promise. He says that I will give you a land. I will give you offspring and I will bless you. Not just so that you can be blessed and get you know, happy and, and, and selfish, but so that through you, I can bless all the nations and all the peoples of the earth. And so this nation formed through this one man named Abraham goes through a series, which is basically the storyline of the Old Testament of rebellion and repentance and rebellion and repentance. And that's the book of Genesis. It reads like a Jerry Springer episode, literally just crazy people, which should be encouraging to us because God works with people who are completely messed up. And so they eventually decide that um, once they get in the land, that they want a king, and God says, you don't need a king, I'm your king, but they say, we want to be like the other people, and that's sort of uh, a theme today, too. Christians always kind of want to be like other people, and they're not satisfied with God, they want other stuff, so God gives them a king, eventually he messes up, then God raises up another king named David, and David has this great vision and dream to build a temple in a city called Jerusalem. And a temple in the middle of that city so that God through this city and through this community and through this nation and through this temple would abide on the earth and through this city and through this temple bless all the people of the earth. Well, David doesn't get to build this temple, but his son Solomon does build the temple and Solomon builds this great temple. And eventually he dies and then begins a series of mostly wicked kings in the Old Testament that lead God's people. They divide into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And most of them are incredibly wicked and whacked and and selfish kings. And eventually in the year 586 B.C., a pagan king by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar overtakes and captures God's people and destroys the temple, which is where God's presence was supposed to dwell on the earth and lays waste to the city. This King Nebuchadnezzar, well, he eventually dies. His cocky son, Belshazzar, rises to power. God does something really magical, has a hand appear on the wall that writes something on the wall saying, you're going to die tonight. He dies that night. And eventually God raises up another king named Cyrus, no relation to Miley. And this pagan king named Cyrus... 
Even though he's a pagan king, not favorable towards God, God moves on his heart and makes him favorable to the Jews. And so a captive captures the people who are the, the captors of God's people in God's providence and makes this king favorable to the Jews. So they, it's like they switch slave owners and this new aggressive captor becomes favorable to God's people and issues an edict where he says... That God's people, these Jewish people, who are just my subjects, can go back to their land and rebuild this city and rebuild this temple. And so that's where we are in the biblical timeline where this young Jewish man named Nehemiah, who is a slave, who is a captive to the Persian king Artaxerxes, has God move upon his heart to go back and rebuild the city of God, Jerusalem, that is so profoundly important in God's plan. And so the parallel for us in our time and our day is that God is moving on a group of people, not just to come and cherry pick for moral, ethical principles so that we can live good individual lives, but that together we can form a city that God tabernacles in, that he lives in, so that he can make his name great in our city in this region, in our time and place. So that's where we are. We read about that background in Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're in Nehemiah chapter 2 today. So um, let me pray, and then let's, uh, let's rock it out. Lord, thank you for your book. Oh God, I know that uh, there's a couple hundred people in this room, and I, I, know, I know, Jesus, that there's people all over the map spiritually. There's people that know you and love you and serve you. And um, they're full steam ahead. I pray that the words that I speak today would encourage them and urge them on to greater things. There's people in this room that know you, but they're struggling deeply. And I pray, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit working through my feebleness, that you would, that you would break them free from their stagnation and being stuck in the mud. And that you would do whatever it takes to free them up so that they can be part of a people on a mission that's bigger than themselves. And then there's people in this room who probably think they know who you are, but they don't. The truth could be told they're lost spiritually. They're rebellious. They're sinful and they're selfish. And they're lost. The Bible is very clear about what awaits those people unless they repent and believe in Jesus. And so I pray, God, that today would not be about religion or about just coming to church, but by the power of your word and your Holy Spirit working together, that you would convict them and that you would bring them to life through your truth and your word and your spirit. There are some people in this room who need to meet Jesus for the first time and good music and a helpful message does not do that. Only your supernatural work does that. So God, I ask you, even as we're talking about a couple practical things, would you go beyond my little weak message and would you save some people today? Would you do that? And then, God, would, would you help me decrease and would you, would you increase through me and would, would you make my words helpful today for the sake of something bigger than just some practical ways to live life better? God, that's so small. God, give us a, give us a bigger vision of life and mission and what Jesus is calling us to do in our time and place in 2009. And I pray it in your gracious and good and all-consuming name, the name of Jesus. Amen.
All right, well, let's back up to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. Just read the end of it, just so we get a context. Remember, Nehemiah is this captive slave. He is serving this king, Artaxerxes, and he has risen to this level through his faithfulness. Now, he's no... He's not anybody, he's not like of, of any hierarchy or if he's not a blue blood, you know, one of the royal families. He's just a captive Jew serving this pagan Persian king in a hostile land. And he has risen through his faithfulness to be the cupbearer for the king, which isn't that great of a job. But, uh, but we're going to read it. Nehemiah 1.11. It says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine, wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. So, so Nehemiah, is, he's the tester. I mean, you know, these, that's how they killed kings in those days. They would sneak a little something, something into the drink and knock the guy off. And, and Nehemiah has the um, rather glorious job of being the tester, the taste tester for the wine for Artaxerxes, just in case somebody wanted to slip the king something in his, in his scotch on the rocks to knock him off. So for Nehemiah's faithfulness and trustworthiness, he gets this job. Thank you, king. <laughs> All right, what a job to have. So, I mean, here's the point. If, if you have a job that stinks... I don't know. Maybe this should be some encouragement to you. <laughs> okay, so it's about three or four months now, too. This is important. It's in the month of Nisan, which is the, 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 uh, this, this, uh, this ancient Eastern calendar. And if we go back to chapter number one, when he heard the report of how Jerusalem was broken down, it was in a certain month, which was the winter months of December and January, equivalent for us. And now it's been three or four months since he's been praying for God to bless him, to send him on this mission, to have the courage to ask this king, which you're going to read about in a second, to go back to Jerusalem and ask him. So it's been three or four months. That should encourage us too. When God moves on our heart, sometimes we have to wait for the right timing and God opens up the door of opportunity here for Nehemiah to ask the king. And, and we're going to read about that. So he took wine up and gave it to the king. Now I had been sad in his presence. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Verse 2. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now this, we just read this. We're like, oh, well, you know, he was obviously, he cared about his people. And so he was, he was sad. Listen, this is, this is uh, really, really significant in this particular time. The king, I mean, these were wicked, hostile, despot rulers. And they, they wanted, they wanted their subjects to just sort of act happy. You ever had a boss that you had to act happy around? You know, he's like the guy. And when he shows up, he's like, Hey, how's everything going? Oh, it's great. And you, like, you get the cell phone text message, like your buddy alerts you that the boss is coming to your wing of the building. He's on his way. The eagle has landed. And so everybody, you know, everybody starts acting busy in their cubicle and the boss comes by sipping his coffee. Kind of like that, that movie, The Office, you know, hey, Oh, how's it? Oh, it's going great. Boss It's going great. And everybody's just playing this fake charade and deep down inside they can't stand the joker you know they just they want to slash his tires in the parking lot and they can't wait to get another job well we laugh about that in our day but in this day that would get you killed i mean now that you were taking your life into your own hands if you allowed your countenance to be sad in front of the king who's not going to put up with any downers but but 
Nehemiah was so, was so moved by what God had put on his heart in chapter 1 about going back to the city of God and rebuilding it that he just couldn't contain it. And then it says, Then I was very much afraid. I appreciate that. Because as we will read through Nehemiah this fall, we're going to read about a man who is courageous, who is a warrior leader. He, the, the, I don't want to get the cat out of the bag, but you can read ahead. In the last chapter, he's so courageous, even with his own people, that he gets so mad that he beats up these kids who are marrying with people that aren't Jews and pulls out their hair and kicks them on the ground and yells at them. <laughs> yeah, my, my kind of guy. But yet when he's standing before the king, he's afraid, he's scared, he's, like, he's nervous. He's one of the great leaders of the Bible, and he is nervous. I, I take great encouragement with that. Verse 3 says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So Nehemiah here, let's get in the scene. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through these eight verses, get in the scene, picture this, and then we're going to come up with just a few points that I think this teaches us and look at kind of what God, I think, is saying to us. But see, Nehemiah is deathly afraid. I mean, God has spoken to him and moved on his heart. He knows that he's the guy that God is calling to rebuild this city. But yet when the opportunity comes, he is scared. He's nervous. His hands are shaking. I mean, he is scared. Scared. I mean, I get nervous. I do. I get nervous. I remember when I asked Jennifer, her parents, for her hand in marriage. I, I wish I would like some people. I don't know. They. I wish I had other ticks when I get nervous. My lip shakes, and I can remember sitting on her dad's couch, and my lip was going through some sort of spastic muscle. Oh, it was terrible. Just this week, I'm a nervous guy. Just this week, sh- you know what I'm talking about. Shark Week was on Discovery Channel. And I have this, my dad, it was the late 70s, I was about 10, way too early to see this whore flick. But my dad, when I was a little kid, took me to Jaws. And, and I have had this strange, mystical fascination slash whore about sharks. I mean, I'm just, they just, let's not talk about it anymore. I'm getting nervous. But Shark Week was on the TV this week, and I'm in my living room landlocked all right there's no i'm 400 miles away from the possibility of the ocean and my hands are getting i'm sweating when i'm watching the guy in the tank with the white shark irrational irrational but nehemiah i'm thankful that like god uses guys who are scared i'm scared i'm scared i'm scared about i get nervous i'm afraid i'm afraid whether or not i'm up to being the leader of this church i'm afraid i'm afraid i'm nervous i'm scared i fret i do we all do. We do. We, we're nervous people. But God uses nervous, scared, timid people. And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Now, look, this is the moment of truth. This could go one or two ways, right? The king has noticed that he's sad. And now the king is like zeroing in. And you don't know whether the king is going to be favorable in this moment. But all you know is that all the eyes are locked on you. Oh, oh you're sad? Well, what are you requesting? I mean, this is, this is the moment of truth. And so he, what does he do in this moment? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now we read about in chapter 1 where he spent three months praying. And now he's on the spot and Artaxerxes is looking at him in the eye and he says, what do you want? And he throws up another quick one. 
I love that. Nehemiah prayed for three months, and as he's standing before the king, he prays again. I think this teaches us a couple things. We're going to hit this a little bit more later. But prayers do not need to be long, religious, formal things. As he's standing before this king with a lump in his throat and sweaty palms and a nervous stomach, in the back of his mind and in his heart, Nehemiah is praying even as he's about to ask for everything but the kitchen sink. Nehemiah prayed, prayed, prayed. And so he prays, verse 5, And I said to the king, listen to this now, this king could have his head on a platter. This is the same king, by the way, who in the book of Ezra, which precedes Nehemiah, Ezra, the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, and Nehemiah in the Jewish Old Testament are combined as one book because they really tell the same story. Ezra is about this leader named Ezra, who's a priest and scribe, who with this man named Zerubbabel, uh, about a decade earlier, went also from this captivity of the Persians back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple first. And so Nehemiah now is part two of the rebuilding plan, and he's going back to build the wall. But in Ezra chapter 4, this same king got a report that some of the Jews were starting to rebuild the city and the wall, and some other uh, folks who were hostile to the Jews gave him that report. And he says, he says, tell them to cease the work and not to rebuild the city. And so this foreign, pagan, hostile king issues an edict just years before and says, nobody can rebuild the city, nobody can rebuild the wall, tell the Jews to stop the work. Now a couple years later, God moves on Nehemiah's heart to do the very thing that Artaxerxes said that they had to stop to do. And in just a moment we're going to read... Nehemiah is about to ask Artaxerxes an incredible, for an incredibly bold thing. And he says in verse 6, And the king said to me, or he says, verse 5, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, in other words, Jerusalem, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. Why is that detail in there? I think that detail is in there for a couple of things. Just to show you the specificity of the historical account that the Bible is true. And secondly, I mean, if you're going to, I mean, this, this is just totally speculative. But if you're going to embarrass the king, that's one thing. If you embarrass him in front of his lady, <laughs> oh man. I mean, just to set the scene. I mean, he's about, to, he's about to ask the king to reverse his foreign policy in front of his girl. I mean, I, I, just, I mean, don't embarrass me in front of my lady, man. I mean, it, it, <laughs> all right. Loosen up. All right. Verse 6. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, we don't read about it there, but we're going to read about it in a couple. We can surmise from the dates later in Nehemiah that it took him about 12 years. It took him just a couple months to rebuild the wall, which we'll read about. But then his governance over the city of Jerusalem took him about 12 years. And so what he does is he, he's asking the king, reverse your foreign policy. Give me 12 years off 
paid leave, and oh, and a couple other things too. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. So give me, give me free passage through the difficult forest, and a letter to Asaph, verse 8, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates, and the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. Okay, so I mean, you, you got to get this. This is crazy. This is crazy. Okay, what we've got here is a king who has a very specific Middle Eastern Israeli foreign policy. And that policy is, stop rebuilding the city. None of those pesky Jews can rebuild that wall. Period. Stamp it. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. God moves on Nehemiah's heart. Now, Nehemiah is, he's not a citizen of the country. He's not like a high-ranking dude who comes from an important family who's a campaign donor. He is a subject slave of the captive king. God moves on his heart. He's the, he's the cupbearer. He's the dispensable Jew. God moves on his heart. And as scared as he is, he is so burdened. And this is what he asks the king. When the king recognizes that he's sad. What's the matter, Nehemiah? Here we go. All right, this is what I want, Nehemiah. I would like you to reverse. You know your, your Israeli foreign policy? Reverse it. Um, then um, if you could give me diplomatic immunity uh, on my way to uh, Jerusalem. And then if you could give me like an open credit account at 84 Lumber, that would be really cool. Because I need all of the supplies. I want you to pay for it. I need all the supplies to build the thing. And then also, I mean, I don't want one of those little construction trailers on the job site. I'd actually like enough wood to build my own house. So give me a total reversal of your foreign policy while your girl's sitting there watching this. And secondly, uh, give me diplomatic immunity, all the supplies, open account at 84 Lumber, and my own house. Brave! Brave! And then verse 8 says, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. That is spectacular. There's three things that I think we can learn from Nehemiah's boldness in this passage. Number one, three things that I think Nehemiah's request teaches. Number one is that he was, he was afraid, he was scared, but his burden, like his burden was more powerful than his fear. I know, I know what it is to be consumed by fear. Johnny Boxdance is one of the newest rangers in the U.S. Army, graduated from West Point. And that's, we have a similar path in life, Johnny. And I can remember being an 18-year-old kid growing up in El Central, California. And I can remember when I received an appointment to West Point, and I almost did not go to West Point because I was deathly afraid to stand up in class and give oral reports and read out loud in class. And I can remember the first Sunday that we started Crosspoint. I was right over there, and Paul had finished the last song. And I was like, can't you just keep singing for a while? Because I don't want to come out. I'm nervous. And I remember looking at that door, and I was saying, if I run out, like right now, it'll be really embarrassing. But at least I won't have to face those people. Like, I, like, I, know, 
I know what it is to be afraid. Nehemiah knew, but there's just something. I got, there's just something about like God when He moves on your heart. The burden of what He's calling you to do has got to be bigger than your fear. Like if you're if you're a young man and your life is not in order and you're just nervous and maybe you didn't have a good example as a dad and you're just kind of wondering how... how look, I, I'm not trying to act like... I mean, this isn't just some happy Christian message like just, you know, read these little promise verses and, you know, sprinkle Tinkerbell dust in your coffee and smile. No, no, no. I, look, fear is real. I mean, life can be hard. Circumstances... I mean, there are real symbolic Goliaths in our world that breathe down our neck, but there's just... There just comes a point where we have, we have got to realize, like Nehemiah, that what God is calling me to do in this moment is stronger than the difficulty that I am facing. Like, the, this, this, this community needs great churches, and that overpowers my self, selfishness and my insecurity. My, 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 my kids need a dad that, that loves them and unpacks the gospel for them, so that overpowers my insecurity or lack of experience in that area. My wife needs me to be the man of God, so that overpowers my, my laziness or my, my guilt from sinful past. It's a burden that what God is doing in your heart has got to overpower. It just does. And there's no, there's no like seven steps to that. It's just the Holy Spirit's got to stick you, and He's got to knock you down, and He's got to say, God, put a burden on your heart, man. Put a burden on your heart that, that things are not as they should be. And so I've got, to, I've got to let that drive me and give me gravity and give me strength so that when I'm in that moment of, of opportunity, it becomes stronger than the fear. The fact that Jerusalem would continue to lay in waste was a bigger deal than the possibility that Artaxerxes would chop his head off. And that, that's just, oh, that's step number one, I think, in, in facing our fears. The burden has got to be bigger than the fear. And secondly, and I love this, is that Nehemiah, his prayers were simple. His prayers were simple. It wasn't religious. It wasn't formal. It wasn't long. Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't be like the hypocrites who pray out in the public with their long, wordy prayers. But when you pray, pray simply. Pray to the Father. Pray like a little child would pray to his dad. I love that Nehemiah's prayers were simple. I mean, he's... Swallowing his Adam's apple, gulping, nervous, butterflies in his stomach, sweaty palms, about to ask for everything but the kitchen sink, and he throws up a quick, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. And then, then finally, the thing that we can learn from Nehemiah is that he combined both prayer and planning. I think, and you've got to ask yourself this question, I think all of us probably, they probably... Um, we probably lean, we each have a strong suit. Like some of us are prayers, and, and, and we're the ones that, you know, something, okay, we can pray, we know how to pray, but a lot of times those people tend to kind of be over-spiritual, super-spiritual people, like they're just always praying, they burn the candles, they got all the instrumental music, you know, the incense is burning in their house, and, and they got the scented flavors, and, and you're sneezing, I, I'm allergic to scented candles, and, um, and so they got it, and they got the little prayer rugs and everything, and I'm, like, I'm not making fun of this, but I mean, it's, it's like all prayer and no action. 
And then, and then, and then other people err on the other side of it, and, and they they know that something's out of order in their life, and so they just go scurrying about trying to, you know, get all this stuff, and you know, three steps, and they got fourteen little moleskin booklets where they're writing four little things here, and they're, you know, they got task things, they got Microsoft Outlook giving them a ding every time, they got little PDA planners, and their iPod, iPhone, they got everything, man. They're da 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 da, but they don't like they don't pray. And I think the example of Nehemiah is, is that those two things have to go together, together. That we, we, we have to be people that, that pray and plan. And we've got to make it simple and real and realistic. And say, God, help us. And now move, move me beyond stagnation so that I can be a person that prays. Well, so what about us? As I said last week, that we're going to be rock, running on two tracks here. And I'm going to end with this. What about us as a church? What's our plan? I want to consider a couple things with you, and then I want to encourage you to consider some planning and prayer in your life. Six things that I think our plan is as a church. Number one, we, we want to pray. We're going to gather tonight. This would be people that pray. If you're in a life point group, if you're a life point group leader, encourage your groups to pray for the church. Look, we're not just gathering here to just get together and have a good time and eat donuts and you know, sing songs and pat ourselves on the back. I mean, pray. We're on a mission here. A city, a community lays in waste. Columbus and the Chattahoochee Valley needs Jesus-centered, Bible-preaching, courageous churches. We've we we got a church on every corner, but a vast majority of our town does not know Jesus. Does that bother us? Or are we okay about it? Or are we looking forward to college football season or the next hunting season or TV? I mean, we're being lulled to sleep. We're not, we're not held captive by a foreign king that's subjugating our people. We're, we're actually being held captive by something more difficult to fight. We're being held captive by pleasure and prosperity and comfort. And we're lulled to sleep by recreation. Does that bother us? Does that bother us? Dads, who cares if your kid is a little league star? He doesn't know who Jesus is. Does that bother you? And so we've got to be people that pray that God would give us a burden and move I mean, are we happy with ourselves that we've got a couple hundred people and we're, we like each other? And this is a cool place to come to church. Is that the goal? If that's the goal, then, then we've terribly missed the boat. This is not the goal. Like, and being, being a good alternative to the church that you came from is not the goal. Like we, we wanna, like the city lays in waste. Do we see that? People are lost. We live in a religious veneer just just uh, we live in an outwardly godly place but deep down inside it's ro- it's rotten do, do we care about it we got to pray for a burden and secondly we we have to preach jesus from the scriptures that's our plan like we we look i hope you figured this out by now but we don't like we believe the bible literally and we don't just gather together to give you three or four little steps to have, help you have a better Thursday afternoon or to help you have a more successful marriage so that you can be happy. Of course, we want people to have great marriages and we want you to be, have a better Tuesday. But, but we want to preach Jesus from the scriptures. And that brings 
offense and it brings division and it brings it brings confrontation. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14, 15, 16, 17, around in there, it says that we are like the aroma of Christ. And that when we preach Jesus to some people, to, the, to those who are perishing, it is the smell of death. To those who are being saved, it is the smell of life. And then it says, who is sufficient for these things? We are like men who sincerely do not peddle God's word, but preach Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is a rock of offense and stumbling stone for people that do not believe in him. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that that the, the preaching of Jesus, the scriptural preaching of Jesus, is foolishness to those who are being who are perishing, but it is the wisdom and power of God to those who are being saved. Look, you, you, I hope you understand here that we believe the Bible, that the Bible's hard, that, that we have to come to the Bible and preach it, that people that do not believe in Jesus will die, and without Him, if they die without Him, the Bible is very clear that what awaits them is everlasting separation and damnation. And so that's why it is so important that we preach Jesus so that, so that everybody in this city and in our place has an opportunity to respond in faith to Jesus. To Jesus. Not to a moral Christian ethic. That's why we say Jesus a lot and not just God. Do you get that? Like all sorts of cultural Christians in this town talk about God. But when you start talking about the exclusivity of Jesus, that you must accept Jesus, that Jesus died for you, that you are a sinner bound for hell, and that without Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and without repentance and belief and trust in Jesus, you are hopeless, and you are futile, and you are still in your sins. And if you die in that state, what awaits you is eternal separation from God, unless it is you receiving Jesus. Jesus, not moral ethic, not a code of Christianity, not American goodness, but Jesus. Do you get that? I mean, there are preachers in our city who can't say the name Jesus. So we are preaching Jesus. And Jesus is the only way. And Jesus offers life. He comes. And He lives a life that that we could not and did not live. Because all of us are rebellious. And again, that is a struggle for us because what masks this for us is that we are fed a pipeline of lies in a culture that says we're pretty good Americans. We're not. The good news is, is that you are the most wicked, like me, we're more wicked than we can ever imagine. But the good news is that Jesus, in his goodness, rescues wicked sinners like us. And Jesus dies the death that we should have died on the cross. And he offers to all who would turn in repentance and belief in him life, forgiveness of sins, redemption, the infilling of his Holy Spirit that then comes to lead you into this process of sanctification where now your life is not just a one-time moment where you say, oh yeah, I believe in that. But now your life is filled. You are now forgiven. You're saved. You are born again. You are regenerate. I mean, there are preachers in our, our town who can't say, you must be born again. And if you go to one of those churches, r- don't walk, run out of that place. 
And and so you must be born again. And when you become born again, now it's not just, oh, I'm a Christian and I can continue to do whatever I want to do and and live like, uh, like it's just about me. But now he fills you with his spirit and his presence and the rest of your life is not perfection, but it is a progressive movement towards Jesus, responding to Jesus, giving your life to Jesus, living for Jesus' mission and not your own, having a burden that is bigger than college football and golf and hunting and barca loungers and pools and rivers and boats and fishing. It becomes something bigger than that. You're a person on a mission with a bunch of other people who are also imperfect, pardoned rebels who are now called into this mission for Jesus. Like, that's the gospel. And, and, if you've, if you've heard what, like if you've bought into anything else, then you, you've been fed a watered down lie. I'm not saying somebody was intentionally deceiving you, but you've been fed a weak, watered down, false, false gospel. And we, we, our plan is to preach Jesus. We say that every Sunday. And the scriptures tell us that that will be offensive to some people. And they'll walk away. And then the Bible says that it'll hit some people and it'll bring them to life. That's the way it is. Three, think missionally. Maybe a word that's unfamiliar to you, but I'll move quickly through this. It just means that your life, your, like your life is bigger. Like, and, and when I bust on college football, man, I, let me tell you, I am the biggest hypocrite in the world. Like I've gone through that a few times. Like... I know the stats for the fourth-string quarterback at USC when he was a sophomore at Chula Vista High School in San Diego. I am pathetically over-involved in my team. But what I'm saying is, and I'm not trying to say don't enjoy, I'm not trying to ruin Saturdays for you, but what I am trying to say is, is that God has given you all things in this world to enjoy and to use as a vehicle to be on a mission for Him. And so if, if Christianity and, and church for you is just a place where you kind of come and you're minimally involved and you're not living on a mission, you are, you are not living the plan. But Jesus has us on a mission as husbands, as wives, in our jobs to live for something beyond ourselves, to be part of a group of people who are doing it together. That's why I think, and I'm not just banging on you here, I just think it's impossible to live a biblical life unless you're connected vitally to a church that believes deeply in Jesus it's on a mission together. Like, you got to do that. Four, insist on biblical community. Man, this is so stinking hard. Let's just be honest. It is hard. It's easy to gather a crowd. It's easy to have a couple guys that can play the guitar. And it's pretty easy. Well, it's not easy. But, I mean, you know, we, we, can, we can come up with a decent Sunday deal. But then, like, living together. You know why? Because we're weird. We, everybody's normal until you get to know them. And then you gotta like go into their house, and you gotta try and maintain a relationship with them. And they're weird, they're freaky, they're unloading all this goofy stuff on you. Like, God, when are we gonna get out of here? The chips are stale, and the dip is bad, and like just, God. I mean, I look, I know, I know. I mean, that's hard. And then we get insecure. We start talking about each other, and and then it's hard to connect because we live on opposite ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. I know it's hard, man, but we. We've got to insist on this. Like, if, like, listen, some of you are in a critical place. Like, you've been coming to the church, and you like it, but you haven't, like, yet connected relationally. 
And listen, it's a challenge, man. We need more, we need more life point groups. We need more people that are here that call cross point home to have a burden for connecting people that aren't connected. And so if you're in that state, you've been coming for six months and you're not connected yet beyond just Sunday morning, you're in a critical place, man. And I pray, I pray, I know your faces. I know your names. I'm thinking, God, would you find it? Would that person be moved? Would the burden hit them? And would the burden be stronger than the fear of social awkwardness? And would it move them to just, just say, I'm going to buckle down and get involved? And then on the flip side of that, would the people that have been here for a while have a burden beyond their homies? And would they just kind of have this missional heart to get outside of that and just go after people? And would the burden be bigger than their comfort? Because we we just got to insist on biblical community. And guess what? You're all freaks. You're all weird. You're all awkward. We're all weird. So let that be the starting point and the only way we can go is up. We just got to insist on biblical community, man. It's dirty. It's messy. It's just hard. It's hard. It's hard. We're pardoned rebels. We're jacked up people that Jesus has redeemed and is continuing to redeem. We've got to live together because you know what that does? When we live together in that way and we just insist on it, we're gracious towards one another, we don't talk about one another, when we pray for one another, when we listen to one another, when we serve one another, it becomes an aroma to the world that that grabs their hearts and softens them for the offensive message of the gospel that they need to hear. Five, find a more permanent place. I've hit this a bunch. Look, we need a, we need a place that we can be in 24-7. We mention it a lot. Pray for that. We've got a group of guys who are doing a lot more work than I think a lot of us realize behind the scenes looking for a permanent place. We don't want to spend millions of dollars on a place that... Um, will be, you know, some Taj Mahal. I mean, come on. <laughs> We're just a bunch of... I mean, we, we, don't, we don't deserve some build. We, wouldn't want, what, we, we just want a place where we can functionally preach the gospel and do ministry. And um, so pray for that. And, and six, we want to add ministry staff. Look, if, if I put in another four years like I've put in, um, I will spontaneously combust long before I want to spontaneously combust. We can't keep going like this. I can't keep going like this. It's not healthy. We need to, we need, that's why we need, we're going to read Nehemiah later where the people had to give, man. We don't bust your heads about giving. Like, I don't want to be the dorky guy that brings and talks about giving and preaches these silly little manipulative messages. Well, if you just give to God, that's just junk. I just want to stick a fork in my eye every time I see a preacher getting manipulative when he talks about giving. But we, look, if you're from Crosspoint, man, we need you to give because we've got people that we need to hire. We need a children's ministry. We need to add to our ministry staff we got we got folks that we just we need to look not because you know we want a health we want to we want comfort because we, we got a mission we got a church we got to build and so i end with this man what 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 is god that's what i think god is moving on us our plan we got to pray and we got to work this plan we got to pray and we got to work this plan we got to pray and we got to work this plan our burden has got to be bigger than any fear or laziness or comfort it's got to overcome that so that we can go and do what god has called us to do what about you what about your life What's your plan? Are you a young guy that's just shooting from the hip and you're tossed to and fro by every circumstance? Or are you praying? And what's your plan? I don't know what that looks like in your life, but the Holy Spirit can get a hold of you right now and do it. And he can begin to move you. And the first step is having a burden that is bigger than any insecurity or sense of comfort that you have let yourself be lulled into sleep to so that you move. And then the verse, the promise is, 
Nehemiah 2.8, and the good hand of our God was upon us. The good hand of our God upon us. Well, let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> as the guys come back to lead us in some music to respond, I pray simply, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would do what words cannot do, what programming cannot do, what manly wisdom cannot do, and that you would move on our hearts with a burden that would overcome our fear, that you'd give us spiritual eyes to see where our church and our city and our lives and our, our circumstances are broken down. And then give us, give us wisdom along two fronts. Number one, if we're scared or if we just don't have the energy to face it, God, would you make the burden stronger than the fear? And secondly, God, if, we're just, if we've just been lulled to sleep by comfort, God, would you make the burden bigger than our laziness? So would you do that? Because I think virtually everybody in this room falls into one or two categories. Either they're scared or insecure, or either they're too comfortable. Or maybe some, like me, God, I got both of those things working against me. So God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, would you, would you sit on me again? And would you drive that burden down into my heart? So that I can be the pastor and leader and member of this church that I need to be. And then... Personally, that I can be the man, the husband, the father, the friend that I need to be. And however that works out on individual lives that are in this room, God, would you do it? I have great confidence that you are a God that speaks. So I pray that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, here's what we're going to do. Communion is open. If you want to receive communion, if you're a Christian, the communion elements represent Jesus' broken body and blood. The bread represents his broken body. The juice represents his blood. Come and receive communion and remember the cross and examine your life. If you're not a Christian, it's really just, it's meaningless. You need to receive Christ. And how do you receive Christ? You right now, maybe through the preaching of this word, realize, and it may have offended you in some way, but you realize that you have to repent and turn and trust. You may realize that you've just kind of had this kind of this distant relationship with God, but now you know you need to receive Jesus. And like, there's no little quick formula for that. You gotta, what you do is you repent. It means you turn and you believe. You do that right now. The Holy Spirit moves on your heart. You can do that. If you want help just kind of talking through that, a few of us will be down here to talk with you and pray with you. But do that. And if you're a Christian and you know, you, then you want to respond in prayer or worship, let's do that. But let's all, let's all respond to God together. Let's everybody stand.